Now, we have been seeing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount that you have Jesus dealing with the religious teachers of that day who had taken the various laws of God and had lowered them to such a degree that essentially they could look around at each other and say, hey, we're doing a great job. We're obeying God. We're fulfilling his word. We are being righteous. And Jesus is now coming along in this in this chapter and putting the standard back where it belongs. And you have Jesus giving very hard teachings in a whole number of different categories, talking to them about how they lowered the bar. And now here is what God had always wanted and always intended. And that continues to be the case in chapter five and verses thirty one through 37. I mentioned I'm taking two of these at a time, but uh, you will notice that these two really do fit together well, and I hope to show you that as well as fit together with the things that Jesus has already said prior. You will notice in verse 31 that it says there that what the teaching was is that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of a divorce. And that looks like a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, but the way that they were applying that teaching is rather interesting because essentially the mainstream thought was that you could divorce for any reason. Just make sure that you give them the paperwork. Make sure you have a certificate of divorce. And if that is in hand, then whatever the reason is for the divorce, that's fine. In fact, you see this come up again in chapter 19 of Matthew, where it comes out of their own mouth when they ask Jesus, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? And of course, they're thinking yes. And Jesus is going to say, well, let me show you what the standard really is. The standard is not divorce for any reason. Now, as you think about this for a minute, it's not hard to see that not only is this the idea that our culture is in right now, which is you can just divorce for any old reason. It doesn't matter whatsoever. But even our religious world is very much in that where you could probably just to go go about anywhere and say, well, you can divorce for any reason. Now, okay, divorce is wrong, but at the end of the day, it's certainly fine. And I want you to see how Jesus answers this, uh, because I think it can be rather surprising. It is uh, so much of what he says in this section, I think, is, is rather surprising. And you notice in, in verse 32 that he turns around and says the standard is this. I say to you. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so here's the standard, that there is only one allowance. Their point of view was it was okay for any reason, just make sure you go through proper legal channels, make sure you use the certificate of divorce, and then everything is going to be okay. But Jesus turns around and says, no, here's the standard. Don't divorce, and there can only be one allowance for it, sexual immorality. Now, I think one of the things that happens is, if you're like me, you have to ask yourself, well, why is this the standard? Why is this the rule? Why not just simply say divorce for any reason, no big deal? Why does God have this in place? Why is this the legislation for marriage? 
And I suppose if you thought for a minute, you could think of a lot of logical reasons. I mean, we could look around at our culture and our society and see the wreckages of broken families and broken homes and multiple marriages and things like that and certainly draw some conclusions from that about the difficulties and problems that happen in people's lives as well as in culture. But I think it is interesting to notice what Jesus says as the reasoning that is given behind that. He says, unless it is on the grounds of sexual immorality, you notice it says in verse 32, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I think that is something that we don't think about in terms of what God is trying to express to us. Is that there is the the presumption that if you divorce, you're going to marry somebody else. And he says, that's adultery. And that's why there's a problem. That's why there is an issue. Is We look at it and just go, well, we just want to be happy and we want to be fine. And what does it really matter? And we'll just be with whoever we want to be. And Jesus is trying to explain something here and say, no, you don't understand the consequences of what's happening. You don't understand that now your adultery is being committed. And that is ultimately what I'm trying to keep you from is this sinful situation. And so one of the things that Jesus does in this and one of the things that I think is interesting about Matthew's gospel is that at least three times Matthew's gospel crosses this this topic. And I think that's fascinating to me, at least that Matthew spends so much time going over over this topic that God is trying to communicate something that I think so easily gets lost, not only uh, in our in our culture and in the general world, but can get lost even in the religious world and in churches and in teachings is that what God's standard is, is that marriage is supposed to be for life. That marriage is not just simply an agreement like you make with Netflix. And when you're tired of the content, you move on to something else. And so often that's how marriage is treated anymore is as long as I am getting some kind of benefit out of this, then I'll stay. And as soon as the benefit ends, then I'm not going to be a part of it anymore. That God is trying to remind us here that marriage is a permanent commitment. It is a covenant. You are devoting yourself and giving yourself to the other person for life. I don't know that I have seen yet, but maybe you have, and maybe the day is coming, but I haven't been part of a marriage ceremony where the promise and the vows were that we promise to stay together until we are unhappy. You know, everybody's sitting there and we're watching the, the vows being given back and forth. And do you promise or swear to take this man or this woman to be uh, your spouse and stay with them until you just can't take it anymore? Oh, I do. Uh, nobody sits in their seats and goes, wow, that is romance right there. I mean, that is everything I've been looking for in life is just we will stay together until we just don't want to. Uh, It is always a, a, a far bigger picture than that of what we are saying is we will be together until death separates us. I don't remember any Disney movie that ends with 
And they went off and then got tired of each other and left each other. Now, we all want they lived happily ever after. We're just wired for that conclusion. And God is trying to give us that. That marriage is for life. This is a covenant that you are making, that you are staying together in this very aspect of covenant and commitment and devotion. That's what we are looking for, what we are longing for, that someone will be with us through thick and thin, no matter what comes along. It's easy to be with people when things are going great. We've got all kinds of those friends. But to have a relationship of somebody that you can depend upon that absolutely no matter how bad or awful it gets, there will be at least one person who will stay with you. That's what you're saying. You are making a covenant, an oath, a vow, not only before God, but to the other person and saying to them, we will be together and we will stay together no matter what. And so that's why Jesus' message is very simple. Don't divorce. And I would draw this conclusion with it, work it out, because one of the things that we just noted last week is you will remember that we were told back in in verse 23 that if somebody has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Go to that person and be reconciled. And that didn't exclude marriage. That didn't exclude that. You know, in marriage, we get behind the closed doors and go, well, I have something against them. And I'm going to put that on my long list of all the problems that that guy has done to me. And Jesus is portraying for us a picture of reconciliation, of working those things out, of being the peacemakers, looking for for solutions. And one of the things that I tell people all the time, because people, I don't know, because I stand here, I get all of their marriage problems. But one thing that I tell people is that one of the best solutions that you can have is to do the things that you did when you were first dating and first married. Because somehow... That pulled you two together to such a degree that you then stood before people and told them, I'm going to be with them until I die. To go back and do those things. This is an interesting thing for me. This year is going to be uh, April and I's 25th anniversary It's crazy that we got married when we were four because we are so young to be in our 25th anniversary at this point. The math works perfectly. Um, (laughs) 25 years. Uh, I guess that gives me a little bit of perception now. (laughs) I've tried to stay away from that kind of topic till I had some experiences. 25 years enough? Um, I think that if if anybody was, was fair... They would say, just like you have in our cliches, that there is a time when the honeymoon is over. And all the overlooking everything all starts becoming annoying. (laughs) 
So I, I counsel people that are dating. If it bothers you now, exponentially multiply it because it will bother you that much more later on. Don't overlook those things now. Uh, they will bother you later. But so many people give up on their relationship once the honeymoon phase is over, the first year, two, five years, whatever it is. And don't realize that there is an absolute sweetness and joy of working through those things to getting to another side of that where you are back in that phase again. That so often I think there is a portrayal that once you've gotten out of that honeymoon period, it's just going to be all downhill from here. And we're all, this is going to be terrible and awful. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And every year is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I want to tell you, that's not true. That's not true. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And you can be in a tough place and in a lot of hardships and a lot of darkness and a lot of difficulty. But that doesn't mean it has to be that way. I strongly tell you, work through it, be reconcilers, be peacemakers, work it out, communicate, move through those things. And you can come out of that dip to the other side and really enjoy a satisfying, happy marriage that God wants you to have if you will put in the effort and the work. I think the trouble is in the beginning, we don't put in any work. It's just, "Eh, you know, and then guess what? Life happens. Right? (laughs) Work happens. Bills happen. Kids happen. Holy cow, kids happen. (laughs) You have your first kid and you go, what did we do? We were so free and had money and what happened? (laughs) Life has radically changed now. And as the two of you negotiate and move through those times, there can be a building of a relationship that is better than you've ever had before or ever thought could be possible. And that's why there is this covenant in effect, is that you can have somebody that you will stay with through everything. And the more you go through those things together, the more you will build something amazing that will hopefully be a picture and a symbol like the Apostle Paul gave in Ephesians 5 that moves to a level of just as Christ and the church in this love relationship, that you can have that kind of love in your marriage. It's possible. And so wherever you are in that pendulum, I want you to see what Jesus is saying. Work it out. Work through it. Don't give up. Keep moving forward. Be the reconciler. Be the one who is, who's doing that. And amazing things can happen with that. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute, but I want you to see how the next paragraph really works into that idea. Verse 33, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have swore. Now, that also sounds righteous and good. That sounds like the law. If you made an oath before the Lord, you're supposed to keep it. But you can tell by Jesus' answer, that's not exactly what they meant. Because what Jesus goes about answering shows, well, what they meant was this. Only if you made the oath before the Lord, do you have to keep it. But if you make the oath by any other thing or any other object or place or person, then you can actually get out of it and you don't have to keep what you've said. 
But if you set it before God, okay, well, then you do have to keep it. And so what it set up, it appears, is a system of taking oaths and vows and promises and depending upon what you set it by would dictate whether you would keep it or not. And you're probably aware of that. You've probably heard of things like that. You watch TV long enough or be around people long enough who'll say, I swear by my mother's grave about something, this, that, or whatever. And then they'll break their word and say, yeah, but my mom's not dead. You know, so they'll do something like that. Or when we were kids, that was the best. You know, you'd go up to them and say, I promise. And behind your back, you've got your fingers crossed, you know. And you know, oh, I had my fingers crossed, got you, you know. <laughs> we had all those kinds of things like that. Ways to get out of what we promised. Ways to get out of the vows that we made. That's what they were doing here. And that's what he, he's addressing here. And so his instruction on the surface sounds very sharp in verse 34 when he says, don't take an oath at all. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying when he says that. that. That's not in this absolute sense because the scriptures are filled not only with people rightly taking oaths and vows. They were commanded to take oaths in the, under the old law. People were commanded to receive those oaths under the old law. Paul went around making vows and oaths as he would address people. And remember, our great God, because there was no one else to swear, swear by, swore by himself and said he even himself took an oath. That's not what the issue is. The issue is don't take an oath looking for some way to try to get out of it. You don't say something, you don't make a promise, you don't make an oath, you don't take a vow, and you say it in such a way with the full hope and intent or possibility that you're going to try to get yourself out of it somehow. And notice that's what he's pointing out here in verse 34. Not to take an oath either by heaven, for it is God's throne. See, instead of taking an oath before the Lord, they'd go, oh, I swear by heaven. And, and, and here's Jesus going, that's the same thing because God's thrones in heaven. <laughs> you didn't get out of your oath because you swore by heaven. That didn't make it any better. Same thing in verse 33. Or swear by earth. They go, say, I only swore by earth, so I don't have to keep my word. He goes, well, guess what? Uh, the earth is God's footstool, so that's the same thing. Uh, or uh, swear by Jerusalem. Well, that doesn't work either because that's the city of the great king. And so... That didn't make it any different either. Or swear by your head. I would like to be able to find somebody who understands exactly what they were swearing by when they were swearing by their head. But Jesus says, that doesn't even work because what control do you have whether your hair is black or white or gone? Um, and uh, you don't. Here you are making these vows as if this seals the deal. And that's all... An oath before God. It doesn't matter if you put your hand on a Bible or not. It doesn't matter if your fingers were crossed or not. It doesn't matter if you were in the courtroom or not, or before Congress or not, or before your friend or not. It doesn't matter where you are or what you swore by. You keep your oath. You keep your vow. You keep your promise. That's what this text is driving at. But guess what? That's not the standard. <laughs> 
Jesus just corrects this false teaching where they're going, it's okay if you swear by other things to break what you said. Jesus goes, no, no, no. If you make an oath, you better keep it. If you make a vow, there's no loophole. If you make a promise, you keep it. But he tells us what the standard is in verse 37. Here's the standard. Let what you say be simply yes or no. There's the standard. You taking an oath doesn't matter. If you said it, do it. If you said yes, it doesn't matter if you took an oath or not. Then it's yes. And if you said no, it doesn't matter if you take an oath or not. Then it's no. That's the picture that's being given here. Is Jesus puts the standard back where it is and says, when you talk to people, don't try to loophole your words so that you can get out of what you're saying. Don't say it if you don't mean it. Didn't our parents tell us something like that? Yeah, very practical and very right. Don't say it if you don't mean it. And if you say it, you better mean it because you are now put on the hook. That you shouldn't even have to take an oath. It's binding to you because it was the words that came out of your mouth. So think about that. When you are at work, you must mean what you say and do it. When you're at home with your family, you must mean what you say and do it. By the way, side point parenthetical, that's a great parenting skill. Do not say it and don't do it. Your kids will run your house upside down. If you say it's no, then you better be ready to get up and make it no. If you say it, you mean it and you carry it out. With your neighbors, if you say it, you mean it and you carry it out. Here with the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you say it, you mean it, and you carry it out. That's the standard that Jesus is giving here. That is the standard that is given to us. Now, think about how well that connects to that last section. You said words to your spouse. I don't know what the exact words were. But I don't think when you were all talking about getting together and being married, that the words that you said were, we'll be together unless we find somebody else. <laughs> I don't think those were the words that were communicated. I don't think that's what was said. I think there were some kind of promises, commitments, and vows that were made while dating and at marriage and even after marriage, words that you said to your spouse that you are to keep. Keep the words you said. Do the words you said. Now, I know here's what we do. Here's what we do. But they, I know. We should understand this, though, because guess what God does with us? How many times have we said words to God that we have not kept? And God keeps his word 
even though we don't keep bars. And you might have times where you have friends or you have a marriage or you have family and you've got the, but they are, and I understand what, okay, they're, they're what they're doing. But you said words. You said words that you're to keep. If you said you love them, then you said you love them. And if you said you're together, then you're together. And you said we'd, we'd always, whatever it is you said, be together. That's why some of those vows are funny. I think it was my brother Scott's wedding that had one of those that she said something like he could always watch football. And I thought, boy, you are gutsy to say that. You said it. I would have recorded. You said it. (laughs) You said it. (laughs) You said words. And I think that's so important for us to let sink into our minds. We said words to each other. And we need to keep those words and understand the importance of that. As the people of God, we should understand that truth more than anybody else about the desire to keep our word and the amazement of how God has kept his word to us in the face of all of our unfaithfulness. How often we have said to God, okay, that's the last time and that wasn't the last time. How many times, okay, I'm going to stop doing that and it wasn't the last time you stopped doing that. How many times we said, I'm going to be more devoted to you, Lord. This is going to be a game changer and this is going to be a whole new day and a whole new week. And it wasn't. And how many times has God still held his end of the bargain and held his words, even though we don't hold up ours? God is trying to impress upon us something. We keep our words. And that's why this little paragraph in 31 and 32 can be so short. You said words. You made a commitment and you made a vow and you made a covenant and you made a dedication and you made a devotion. You did all of those things before God and before others. And even if it's to nobody else, you said it to them and you said words that you're supposed to carry out. And so God holds us to that. Now, as we conclude, I want to draw an important conclusion. Remember what Jesus is doing in this section and in this chapter and in this context. Because the whole intent of what Jesus is doing is putting the standard back where it belongs so that we can understand, realize, and be convicted by how far short of the standard we fall. Because I would say if we took a poll and said, all right, if you kept your word, pick your relationship. Have you always done what you've said? No, no, and no. We just have it. There is zero relationships in terms of family, friends, acquaintances, neighbors, marriage, work, where we have always 100% done exactly as we said without loophole, without deception. We just right on meant what we say and did it. There's not a single time. And so Jesus is trying to convict us of that and get us to understand how woefully short we fall. How many times have we not kept our word? And how many times have we not followed through? Probably far too often to count. Probably too much to even realize. Things that we said or even promised 
that we failed to follow through. But marriage is certainly a great example of it. How many times have we said that we would love our spouse and love them unconditionally and then came up with conditions later on? Yeah, but you're not doing, there's your condition. And how many times have we failed to carry out the things that we said that we would do? What God is wanting to do in helping us get righteousness right is to really have us broken in spirit, humbled, sorrowful over the fact of how many times we have broken our word to just let it sink in how unfaithful we can be in our words. And to think about how many times has God had to forgive us for our failure to be faithful to what we've said. You know, we often want to think about all of the obvious bigger sins. But just think about that one. How many times do we have to be forgiven because we just haven't done what we said? Or we tried to get out of it and we didn't mean it. Or we mentally had our fingers crossed. We had no intent of carrying it out whatsoever. What God wants is for us to keep our word. Do as we say. And to seek forgiveness. For when we don't. To really be convicted by that. That there are so many things that we say that we don't intend. So many things that we tend to do but then don't do and we don't mean what we say don't carry it out and please think of just about how far reaching that is that it reaches into marriage it reaches into every relationship it reaches into every aspect of what we do on a regular basis mean what you say carry out those words And seek forgiveness when you don't do it. But that is the standard that God has given to us as the people of God. This is what it looks like to live the blessed life. Is to be people who mean what they say and carry it out. Can you imagine how radically different we will be in shining as lights and being salt of the earth. As we deal with a lost world in a dark world. And we are doing exactly as we say unequivocally. And that we mean what we say and we carry it out and we carry it out even if it hurts. That we show ourselves to be the people of God in that way in every single relationship. We do it. We mean it. We say it. You can count on it. That kind of integrity and ethical response is fading fast in our culture. We can be radically different. We're those kinds of people. We can really show God. To be the kind of people when we mean what we say and carry it out no matter what. Now I understand there are a lot of things we say to people and it leads to complicated situations. And as I always put forward in any time we're ever talking about complicated situations, complicated relationships, even in marriages... In trying to sort those things out, if you ever have questions, you can always get with Dan and I about how how do I unravel these things? I've done things that I shouldn't have done. I 
made commitments and said words and I didn't keep them. Now what do I do? We're here to help you. That's what we're here for. Is to try to help you figure that out. Now what? And we want to help you in that. To help you unravel those circumstances. And figure out what does God, God's will for you going forward. And trying to be the honorable people of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. It is awfully convicting to think about. How often we have said words to you that we haven't kept. How often we have made promises, how often we have proclaimed our devotion. How often we have said that we would go a new way and we failed to do it. And so, God, as we are convicted by our failure to keep our word, I pray that you'd forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for how often we woefully fall short of the words that we've said and the promises we've made and the covenants that we've made. How we have woefully failed in doing what we ought to have done. And God, I pray that you would strengthen our our resolve and strengthen our faith so that we will not try to get out of our words, but that we will seek to be faithful to every word that we say. Help us to follow through in promises and covenants that we have made in our past to others and be faithful to promises and covenants made in the future toward others. And most importantly, Lord, help us to be faithful to our promises to you. Lord, we have promised to be your people. We have promised to be faithful to you. We have promised to turn away from sin, to move out of darkness into light, to be transformed by the image of your son and by your word. And Lord, we pray that we would be those people, that we would give ourselves over to you in that way, submitting to you with all of our heart. Lord, help us as we seek that. And we know that we fall short of that promise. We fall short of your glory and God forgive us of that. And Lord, it is our great prayer that today will be a new day where we will keep our word, keep our promises, keep our covenant and do all that we have said that we would do toward others and toward you. Help us in that effort, Lord. And forgive us for when we fall short. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus, the one who is faithful in all things, who faithfully came to this world, faithfully kept the law, faithfully obeyed every aspect of God's will, and faithfully gave his life for you so that you could have eternity with him. We want you to enjoy that. And we are so grateful that God is a God who loves us so much, who forgives us of our sins. And we want you to experience that grace today. Would you turn to him this very morning, repent of those sins, confess Jesus to be the son of God, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we help you in any way? Let us know or come forward while we stand and while we sing.